big week for me around my house. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, was out of town this week, and I made it. Um, I'm happy, happy to report that at least one of our two kids was being properly cared for at all times throughout the week, and so that's pretty good, pretty good. Um, but as she was coming back, uh, I was looking for ways to show love um, when she returns, and I found this inspirational video of two eight-year-old twins meeting their grandmother at the airport that we've got here. (laughs) They decided to surprise her uh, in dinosaur costumes like you do, but apparently their mom told their grandmother. (laughs) Also. (laughs) Oh, that is love in action. If we watch all the way to the end when this other dinosaur gets around, there's a little happy dance that only happens when your grandmother dresses up like dinosaurs. There. (laughs) That is love in action right there, I think. Um, Around my house, it was a little bit different than that. Um, Grace uh, made cookies um, for her her mom. They're uh, they're wooden cookies, but she made those out of love. And uh, and Hudson, our son, of course, made a Lego heart ring out of horns and snakes uh, for his mom, too like you do. That is love in action for us. In this series, we're exploring the revolutionary invitation from Jesus to let love be the center of our lives. Let love of God and neighbor and ourselves be the center around which all things move. And now, we know how to do that in some ways. Showing love at airports in our relationship in dinosaur costumes, we can do. You just pull out the dinosaur costume, and you got love taken care of there. But when it gets to other aspects of our lives, uh, particularly kind of real-life stuff, the way to center and live and revolve around love may not be quite as clear for us. And we're not alone in that. Uh, Throughout time, in big theological conversations about faith and love and action, there's been this ongoing question of how how do we live and love and work for love publicly, together, Uh, civically, politically, in our city, in our nation, in our world? How do we look, work, and seek love in all things in those places? I mean, how do you work for love in, like, real life? What um, What does a financial system that's more loving look like? It probably has less overdraft fees, I think, but it, but what does that look like in this big picture? How do we how do we make public policy more loving or foreign policy or, or our relationship to the environment or our legal system or our prison system? Where does love fit in and what is our voice to that? As people called to live and move in the world in the way of love, to seek to make a difference for all people, how do we let love be the center of our public life, our action, and our advocacy? Love might be an ideal that drives us, but it seems so far off from our institutions that we've got a long way to go to reach that ideal. And so where do we start? Well, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, whose legacy we remember this weekend, along with all of those who worked and are still working for civil rights and racial justice for all people in our world, they asked this question. And the answer that they found when they asked the question of what does love require of us resonated with others in our faith tradition and in Jewish heritage and our teaching and the example of Jesus and more, they found that the way to live love publicly, one of the ways to do that is by seeking 
to live lives, to pursue and practice justice. Dr. King would paraphrase theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who said that, that justice is the approximation of love in our common world, that the way to work in our world for love, one of the ways to do that is to pursue justice in places of injustice, and vice versa. One of the ways to pursue justice in our world is to work for love. These two things work together. Niebuhr said it this way, love is the fulfillment of the highest and the highest form of justice. Justice, justice is the approximation of love in our common world. And so this is one of the ways that we can practice love publicly in our systems and structures and societies to seek a more loving world by seeking the spirits of justice. That is, equality and fairness, protection of the vulnerable, lifting of the oppressed, the elimination of obstacles, the creation of opportunity for all, and justice when it makes judgments to make them humanely and not cruelly, to seek justice. And love shows us that the highest form of that spirit of justice is what we might call redemptive justice, that in the face of wrong seeks to redeem all things, both those who stand with us and those who stand on the other side who consider themselves our enemies to seek redemption in all things, in the face of all things, seeks to bring new life and cultivate flourishing for all people. And that's the kind of justice that love invites us to seek in the world and in our institutions, and one that aligns with the heart of the God who is love, who is described in this way in places like Deuteronomy 17 and 18, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, a great God who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. And in Psalm 146, says this God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, who sets the prisoners free. That is how God lives love in the world, it says. And that's the kind of justice-creating love that is God's heart at the center of all things. Uh, Dr. Cornell West summarized King's teachings in this way. He said, justice is love in public. Um, There's other ways to show love in public. Dinosaur costumes come in very handy when you need them, but in our life together as a society and a culture, Love worked out often through seeking justice in our lives and in those places and relationships where, they have, where we have the power and the potential and the privilege to act. Love calls us to act for justice. Um, Dr. King said this in his last presidential address in 1967 to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was never president. So his last presidential address to this conference, he said this, power, that is us acting and using our power. When we do that without love, is reckless and abusive, and love without power, love without action, is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love, he said. So last week we talked about the love that's at the center of everything, this beautiful moment where Jesus, with clarity and comprehensiveness, makes this revolutionary statement, saying that everything should hang on and everything in our faith and life should center on love. 
on love of God, love of neighbor, as we love ourselves. But that wasn't the only place in Scripture, in our Scripture library, where there's this moment of, that seeks to sum up the heart of everything. So about 500 years before Jesus, it, earlier in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's this story about a prophet named Micah, who imagines God kind of summing up everything for the nation of Israel, for their life together as a society and culture and people, how to live together as a people, their public life. And this question comes, you know, what are we supposed to do? How should we live toward each other? How should we live our lives? How should our faith lead us to act? What does God want for us together? And the message that came back was forceful and clear and profound. And this is what it says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says, God has told you, O mortal, and in some translation, there's like a look. And in the Texas translation, it's look, y'all. So look, y'all. God has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God, with your neighbor, with yourself, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly memorize that. Let that be your mantra. Let that be your walk-out music in your baseball stadiums that you go to, because that's how love moves in the world in public ways. It seeks to bring about justice. That seeks to let kindness, the kind kind of love, be its way, and love seeks to walk with humility in all things. And from the lessons of the civil rights movement that we remember and reflect on this season, the intersection of those things are a powerful, transformative force for good and with God in our world. And so the last clause of that, that Micah 6-8 passage, walk humbly, invites us in our justice-seeking to walk with an openness to each other. And one of the ways to walk humbly in our lives and to set ourselves in that posture is simply to let our way of being be one that begins with listening, to listen with kindness and mercy and compassion that leads us, to let our hearts listen. That is the beginning, I think, of our work in our time, is to listen to our neighbors and to our coworkers, to our community, to our world, and especially listen to those places, as Crystal said, that are hurting, that are crying out for justice, to listen to listen without judgment and defensiveness, dismissal, to listen across lived experiences and listen to our neighbors and to all, to listen with humility and kindness in a way that seeks to do justice. So one of the great movers in the civil rights movement was incredible, uh, is an incredible woman by the name of Ruby Sales. Uh, who in the 60s was part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that worked for voting rights in Alabama, even when she was just a teenager, if any of us want to feel like underachievers in life. <laughs> and she's never stopped working. Um, now she calls herself a public theologian, which is uh, my aspiration. I want that on my business card. Uh, right now it just says pastor-type person on my business <laughs> card there. Uh, but as a public theologian, she seeks to, to think and to converse with the community, with the public, with God, and with tradition, 
and the way that God is at work in our world and to live and love publicly, which means engaging, especially now, in deep questions of justice, and in particular, racial justice. And she said there was this question that was at the heart of her theology that she learned to ask during the civil rights movement, and a question that drove her deep into the heart of things and drove her to listen with an openness. It was this simple question. Where does it hurt? She asked it in Alabama. She asked it with people she worked with and advocated for. But she first learned to ask that question to a young girl that she encountered on the streets of Atlanta, whose body bore the marks of a difficult life. And she asked her, where does it hurt, honey? And as she listened, out came stories of deep hurt, Uh, for so much and for so long. And in listening, she heard well where that hurt came from. But she also heard this larger question of the systems, of the deep injustice in our world of racial and economic and gendered injustice. When she asked, where does it hurt? She heard the places where that hurt comes from. And that question began to shape how she listened and she worked for justice. In our world today, there's so much hurt. And if we listen with humility and with kindness, we can hear. We can hear, and we can hear this stirring of love that moves us and calls us to work in compassion for justice. As we ask, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? And we listen, and we listen. And we listen to the hurt of those who are struggling for jobs and living wages in our world. We listen to the hurt in our classrooms of those who are struggling with anxiety and bullying. If we listen to the hurt at the borders of those who come seeking hope and life and have found the opposite. If we listen to the hurt of those whose color makes every traffic stop a moment of life-changing fear for them, and on and on, if we listen, and listen humbly, because we don't always understand what people are telling us or the politics or the policies involved in it. We may not be able to understand beyond our own lived experiences, but we need to listen to those who are telling us and answering the question of where it hurts. And with humility and mercy and kindness, let love call us to the practice of seeking justice. It can be hard to listen, can't it? (laughs) Uh, especially when we're listening across the distances of experiences and cultures and assumptions. You know, my grandmother would always tell me, like, you have two ears and one mouth, and so you need to listen twice as much as you speak. But I don't think she realized just how big my mouth could get <laughs> at times, right? So I often think about this, uh, this line from the prayer of St. Francis that kind of postures us in the way to be and to listen. It begins like this, O divine man- master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand. That's how to listen humbly, to seek before we seek to be understood, to understand the experience of those that we sit across the table from, that we sit across the divides from, to seek to understand and to seek to understand where it hurts. So recently, our Open Thought Sunday morning small group read a book together uh, called White Fragility. Why is it so hard for white people to talk about racism, uh, which was challenging and transformative? When I read that subtitle, I thought, hang on, it's not hard for me to talk. 
oh, yeah, I guess it is hard for me to talk about racism. This defensiveness came up immediately. And so the experience of going through this journey and seeking to listen well has been transformative to me and important. And so I just want to share a little bit of a couple of the things that this experience made me think about. Um, one of the things that it did was, was first move me away from one of the reasons that it's so hard to talk about racism is because sometimes the lens that I have is that racism is only about very bad people. Like I remember in, a, um, in an after-school special, uh, there was this person in the neighborhood who was kind of a bully, and one day they, they catch him with his sleeves rolled up, and he pulls it up, and there's a swastika on his arm. And everybody's like, Steve, you're a racist. You know, and then this thing flashes up. It's like, the more you know, you know, kind of after-school special thing. Like, that was the vision of, of this way of being, that, that racism was about very bad people with swastika tattoos. And instead, what it invites us to see is that it isn't a question it, that, that the real issues in our world are not those of simply immoral people, but of systems and structures, a larger picture that surrounds us all, and simply how we're born into and socialized into a system that has so much history and so much present, a system that, that does things overtly, yes, but also subtly and powerfully shifts the dynamics. Uh, like for me, the culture that I was born into, um, the world has made the accepted norm, a particular way of being and talking and interacting and dressing that helps me move in the offices and boardrooms of life. It's small things like just knowing your suit and tie are, are classy, but not too flashy of a suit or shoes. You know, it's just the norm of how to be accepted in the world. And I have the privilege of being born into that and knowing innately how to navigate it and how to look the part, or at least I can look the part in this, I promise. Um, I can do it. And those kind of things may seem small, but it's just part of a larger generational system that has profound consequences for all of us, these racial inequities and real hurt. So in our White Fragility class, um, we were joined by an amazing uh, black woman, a, a brilliant, strong leader in our community who's the age of my mother, and she shared with us that for her, growing up in Lake Dallas, there wasn't a school for her and her brother to go to. There was just no school for them. And eventually, when she was in third grade, one opened up for her. But by that point, her brother was too old, and their lives and their trajectories diverged. And I sat across this table with this woman who's my mother's age, my mother, who went to college, to a few colleges, to grad school, my mother, who both of her parents went to college. And I'm sitting across this amazing woman that I look up to, and I realize that I was two generations ahead before I even began. And it goes on and on. For most of American history, even into modern times, black folks simply could not acquire wealth or even buy a home at just interest rates, or buy a home in certain neighborhoods. And so still to this day, according to uh, federal studies, to this day, households that are headed by a white high school dropout have three times more household wealth than households of black college graduates. 
So white households headed by college dropouts have three times the wealth of the households headed by black college graduates. And then the median, median worth of households overall, this is from 2014, the median net worth of white households is $130,800. Um, for some of us, that may seem astronomical, but that's what it says. For black households, it's 9000 $590. I can't even do the math of how far apart those things are. And so we look at that, and for me, it's humbling. Because these things affect life in every way, in our lives, in our children's lives, in our school systems, real outcomes and real opportunities. And in that is an answer to where it hurts. And looking at that and recognizing that doesn't mean that I'm a bad person, but it means that I was born into and raised in and socialized in a system where the life experience for me and those that I share this life with are different. For instance, for my black clergy brothers, our life experience is very different not to mention my black clergy sisters in this life. So we were born into a racially unequal world. And the question is not, are we or are we not? The question is, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? The larger issue isn't swastika tattoos, although that is an issue. It's also an issue of a racially unequal world an unjust system that's sometimes implicit and sometimes unintentional, but it's unjust just the same with institutions that produce really different outcomes. And so the question for me is, what am I going to do about it? If I want love to be the center of my life, how do I do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly in a hurting world and let my life be centered around love? I'm finding as I as I become aware of this, that it's not a one-time choice. It's a journey for me of being aware, of, of listening, examining myself, learning, acting, and then listening some more. But that is the work, the revolutionary transformation of justice in love that we are called to in our time. Our siblings of color are telling us where it hurts when we ask the question, will I listen? And as I become more aware, am I going to choose to listen with humility and kindness and choose to stand on the side of justice and stand with those experiencing injustice? But the amazing heart of the good news of this story is that the story isn't finished yet. The journey is not done. In the love of God that sits at the center and moves us and propels us in this life, in the love of God, we can be different and our world can be as well. And so am I using the power that I have in the service of love? Am I using my voice and my vocation and my personal and public witness? Each of us have chances every day in our families and neighborhoods and classrooms and congregations and workplaces to be a part of the work of justice and love in the world? Am I willing to engage in acts of love and truth and justice whenever I have 
a chance? Will I stand for the things of love and for those that are hurting? It's not a one-time choice, but it's an ongoing work of examining, of listening, of learning, of acting, and then rinse and repeat (laughs) over and over. But this is the journey that love calls us to. When love is the center of our lives, this is the path of pursuing love together in public. So I need to listen. We need to listen. And I need to respond to the hurt of those who are speaking. And then there's a second question for me to ask, and it's this. Where does it hurt? Why does it hurt? And in my power, in my potential, in my privilege to work to change the wise insofar as I'm able and to do the ongoing work to change myself. So we begin to, to think about this and listen and really listen. It can be a lot for us. Um, and it can seem impossible. It's way easier just to get a dinosaur suit and put that on and go through the world and call it a day. But the witness of the civil rights movement that we celebrate of Dr. King and Ruby Sales and and John Lewis and Abraham Heschel and thousands more, is that the world can change. That we can change. That God is at work and we can have hope and we can know that the time is always right to do what is right. But even more, I think the witness of this movement of God is the witness that tells us that we are not doing this work alone. And we're not doing it in our own strength. When we stand for love in ways small and big, we stand together in a stream of history. And we stand with the God who is moving history. The God who is love. The deepest forces in the universe are at work with us and for us and before us as we go. The God of love who is drawing us all on like a gravitational force that is bending the moral arc of human history towards justice and joy and peace, toward love and all that love stands for at the center of everything. And that God's love wins. So the beating heart of the civil rights movement and why we turn to it these days It's because their vision was not just economic or systemic plan that was rooted in what is, although that is something. It was a sacred vision of what will be, of the heart of God and the heart that unites us all. Dr. King and others joined Jesus in calling it the beloved community, the community of all people that sits with love at its center where the I and the we are intertwined and where we are most ourselves together. Ruby Sales says this, that amidst the world of fragmentation, we build the beloved community by claiming each other, by listening and caring for and working for, and most of all, working with and love each other the redemptive love that sees not just what is, but what can be, must be, and will be. And so we are invited in our time to claim each other on this journey and not let go, to let love be the center of our lives together. And when we claim each other, and we claim ourselves, in that we claim something infinitely powerful. We claim for ourselves the freedom and the power 
of the God who is working in us to be different, to center around love, and to work for justice. We're not alone in this world. We're being reminded that we are surrounded by generations right here in this room right now. We are not alone. And in this work, we join a long line of people who've been worked for justice. But even more, we join with the power of God. Great power lives in our love, and may it live at the very center of our lives as we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly, and let our lives and our actions be centered around love. So as the kids are returning to us, um, when we talk about this power and freedom, that language comes out of the baptismal liturgy that we celebrate in this place, in the Methodist tradition. It says, asks this question of us all, do you accept the freedom and power that God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppressions in whatever forms they present themselves and renew your commitment to love? It's one of the questions. And that line for me has been that first line, Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you? The story that we celebrate this weekend, that we remember and that we gather around in this place every week, is that God is offering us the freedom to be different and the power and the empowerment to make it so for us together. It's not a one-time thing. It is a journey of listening, learning, acting, and doing it again and again as we grow. But it's a simple choice of do we accept that we're free to be part of making this world different? And do we accept that infinite power that is working along with us together as community, as people in a long line of tradition seeking those same things, but most of all as people of a God who is at work in us and among us together? And so in just a moment, we have some bowls here at the front. Um, As a marker, baptism in the Methodist church is kind of a marker of being a part of the community. And we believe that part of being a part of this community is taking on the freedom and the power that God gives us to help make the world different. And so you may have been baptized before. We're not baptizing people today, but we are taking on this, this commitment and renewing our commitment as people of God, to accept the freedom and the power to be a part of transforming this world with a revolution of love lived out in justice and kindness and humility together. And so if our people who are going to lead us in this would come to the front, they're going to ask you this question, do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil and justice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves and renew your commitment to love? And you can say whatever you say. I think I will say, yes, I do. Dip your hands into the water and remember the power and the freedom that God gives you. You can cross yourself. You can, um, you can do whatever you want to. Once you've got the water, it's yours to do. And same thing with that freedom and power that God gives us. This is our journey, but we do it together. We do it with our neighbors. We do it with a God who is with us. Let me pray for us. Gracious, loving God, we thank you for your love for us, your work in our lives. May we be people of justice, 
but most of all, may we accept the freedom and power that you give us to be a part of transforming this world. We pray this in your name. Amen.